0: Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are a Jesus community telling the biggest story of God in Los Angeles. We're excited that you're joining the conversation with us today. Enjoy. What obstacles are you encountering right now? killed because he's a baby boy, and he snuck snuck away, and they put him in the river, and the Pharaoh's daughter finds him and raises, raises him as royalty, as an Egyptian, you know, son of the Pharaoh kind of thing, but the seed of his destiny as a Hebrew boy was in him from the beginning, and so as he's an adult man, he's out observing the Hebrew workers, and he's the royalty, like, observing things, and he sees an Egyptian uh, slave master beating one of the Hebrews, and he gets pissed. Something from within rises up, and is like, no, and he kills the guy. Well, word gets out, you know, oh, Moses, yeah. Well, the next thing that happens is he comes out the next day, and the Hebrews are like, oh, are you gonna do something to us, too? And so through all of this, he realizes he needs to go. So he leaves and goes after to Midian, and ends up marrying a woman, being with Jethro and this family out in the wilderness. And then he gets a call, and Corey talked about the call last week and the struggle that went on within him to say yes to God. But he says yes. All this magic tricks, they. We were here last week, we talked about God tells Moses to throw down this, this stick, and it becomes a snake, and then he puts his hand in the coat, and it comes out, and it's like covered with white, and he puts it in. So it's like these tricks, and he goes, go talk to Pharaoh, do these tricks, and he will believe you, and he will let the people go. So that's where we are when we get to today's story, and in the meantime, Moses has gone to Jethro and said, I have this call, I need to go, and he's gotten the blessing, Aaron shows up in the wilderness, which is kind of a miracle because God had said, you know, I'll give you Aaron, and then Aaron shows up because God called him, and it's like, well, all right, we're going on the road. Things are looking okay. And then he and Aaron go to the Israelite elders, and they say, we have come to lead you out into the wilderness. We need to go sacrifice to our God. We're going to go do our thing. And they tell him the story, and they get excited. And they have a worship time. So everybody's excited. Everybody's on board. They're like, let's go. We're going to go do this. We're going to follow our destiny, be the people we were meant to be. And then we get to this chapter. So here's our text today, Exodus 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us. Let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he will fall upon us with pestilence or sword. But the king said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. Ah! Obstacle! What happened to the snake? That was my question. Like, wait a minute, you were supposed to do the snake trick. Like, why did you forget that? That was kind of cool. I don't know. Anyway, Pharaoh said no. They are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop working. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters, the people, as well as their supervisors, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. Obstacle. But you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as that they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That is why they cry, let us go, and offer sacrifices to our God. This is not looking good. Let heavier work be laid on them. Then they will labor at it and pay no attention to the deceptive words. So the taskmasters and supervisors and the people went out and said to them, thus says the Pharaoh, I will not let you give you straw. Go get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be lessened in the least. So the people scattered throughout the land to gather stubble for straw. Have you felt like this in your life sometimes? You're trying to make bricks and whatever straw you had is taken away and now you're not able to go look for stubble. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work the same daily assignment as when you were given straw. The supervisors of the Israelites, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters set over them, were beaten and were asked, why did you not finish the required quantity of bricks yesterday and today as you did before? So it's getting even worse. Now not only are we not getting our job done and following our call and our destiny, but we're getting beaten in the middle. Then the Israelite supervisors came to Pharaoh and cried, why do you treat your servants like this? No straws given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. Look at your servants are beaten. You are unjust to your own people. He said, you are lazy, lazy. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. This is kind of his mantra. Go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, but you shall still deliver the same number of bricks. So they're getting nowhere. They're trying to do what, you know, but it's not going anywhere. The Israelite supervisors saw that they were in trouble when they were told, You shall not lessen your daily number of bricks. And as they left Pharaoh, they came upon Moses and Aaron, who were waiting to meet them. And they said to them, The Lord, look upon you and judge. You have brought us into bad odor with Pharaoh and his officials, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you mistreated this people? Why did you ever send me? Since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has mistreated his people, and you have done nothing to live around your people. This is the story of life.
1: We have a destiny, we have
0: a hope, we have something we want to set out to accomplish, and we run into obstacles. The process of staying engaged is difficult because it means owning what you really feel, feeling what you feel, being angry, being frustrated, despairing, Being, feeling like hopeless, like William shared. This is the normal life cycle. And yet for many of us in our happy Christian upbringing, we were told that if we follow Jesus, everything's gonna be fine. And feelings weren't considered, and the fact that sometimes life sucks was not given any space. And so we're reworking in our own lives, how do I face obstacles, and challenges in an authentic way. And we do that by staying engaged with ourselves. Complaining, talking about it, going to each other, having conversations, talking to God. Interestingly, we see back in the Old Testament, people were dealing with their stuff. They weren't ignoring it. They were talking about it. The cycle of life is we get a call, we get a vision, and then We get excited, and then we're hopeful, and then we meet obstacles, we despair, we get frustrated, we have to figure it out again. Our desire is to follow that seed of life that is who we are. I was having a conversation this morning about that, and realized some of us never even got a chance to find out the seed of life, because we were in survival mode. How many people feel like whatever your destiny is, or whoever you're called to be, or whatever that thing is... You're like, I don't know, I was so busy just trying to be a good little Jesus person that I never figured that out. I don't know what that is. Because if you've lived in survival mode and you've been inauthentic in your life, it's, it's a struggle just to get back to authenticity with yourself and knowing who you are. And that may be where you are, and that may be the internal obstacle that you're facing, is figuring all this stuff out about who am I and where am I going, and I don't even know Maybe there's external obstacles. When we are faced with obstacles, change, difficulty, we have like three choices. We can try to keep things like they were. We can kind of try to shore everything up and keep doing it the way we've been doing it. But that doesn't usually work, because the reality is, is change is part of life. The second option is we can despair and die and just go into a hole and isolate and be miserable and you know eat bonbons and watch netflix and drink alcohol that's a choice that sometimes people make as part of survival we do not know what to do we don't know how to stay engaged we feel frustrated we feel alone we're in that despairing place and we need support we need people around us we need a supportive community to help us and the way the third path is really the path of jesus It's the path of surrender and grow and learn through the challenges. And we do it in community, we don't do it alone. And that's one of the things about New Abbey that is so important is we wanna create an authentic place where you can find the care, the support, the allies for yourself on this journey so that you don't have to struggle alone because we will all struggle, it will be difficult, but we're not called to do it alone. When it comes to adverse experiences, there's a guy named Martin Seligman. Anybody heard of him? He's a positive psychology uh, researcher. And he has developed this um, concept of explanatory styles. And it has to do with how do we explain to ourselves negative events. And his work really started in a quantitative way back in the 70s. But it went way back to a guy named Viktor Frankl. Do you guys know who Viktor Frankl is? So Viktor Frankl is a Holocaust survivor who is a psychiatrist. And he survived the Holocaust. And out of that experience, he developed this therapeutic model called logotherapy, which basically, he said that if people have a purpose for living and a meaning, they can survive almost anything. And this is what he had to say about adversity: that all events are blessings given to us to learn from, to ultimately grow through. And what he saw in the concentration camps was that there were really three categories of people. There were the optimists who kind of kept trying to have a cheery attitude, and you know, the cheerleader and sisra-ra. But for them, that couldn't last. It could not last through the brutality of what those people were suffering through. And then there were the pessimists who immediately, everything that was difficult about it, they just were, had such a negative view of things that they just pulled in and couldn't tolerate it. And then the middle group was the realists. And this, these were the people that looked at what was, they they acknowledge the pain and suffering. They didn't ignore it, which people who skew optimistically can tend to ignore it. Any sevens in the room that, uh, that are backup behaviors to avoid pain and seek pleasure? Good get addiction out there? That would be my, my way. Um, but that's, that's the skew. So there's three kinds of uh, ways of thinking about it. Are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist? Or are you a realist? And one of the ways of thinking about this is how you view the negative events of your life. Do you view them, uh, What the next line? There are the three categories for looking at a negative event in your life, is do you personalize it? Because a pessimist personalizes things. If something bad happens, a pessimistic viewpoint will be I did something wrong, this is a reflection of me, something internal about this. And then they will make it permanent. It's not a temporary thing. This is gonna be my life for the rest of my life. And then they make it pervasive. Everything's bad. So one thing goes bad and suddenly everything's bad. I was feeling that way a couple weeks ago when I had this awful allergy attack and I was like, I had COVID and I was isolated and I'm like, ah. You know, and everything was like dark coloring. So sometimes these ways of thinking about things can be states, but they can also be traits, and we're all kind of wired somewhere on the continuum. On the other hand, the optimist looks at something that goes wrong and is like, oh, that's a temporary thing. It's, you know, it'll pass, things will get better. You know, you don't have any money in the bank, you're charging up your credit card, you're like, ah, things will get better. You know, each month, things will get better. You're paying more money, less But you have this view of reality that keeps you going, which is actually a survival. And if you're going to lean one way or the other, optimism is definitely better for your mental health than pessimism. And there's a whole realm of Seligman and positive psychology about learned optimism. So if you're somebody in there and you're identifying yourself as a pessimist, look up learned optimism and study up on that. And try to grow some resiliency because it's possible. So an optimist will also look at a negative event and view it as a temporary situation, and it's a one-time thing. So when we look at the adverse experiences of our lives, we can look at it through these different ways. And the, the realist stands in the middle and gathers the facts and looks at what is real here. And I've tended to lean optimistic And recently I've taken on a call, I've made a big financial decision that I need some more money in my life. How many people can resonate with that? Anybody else need more money in your life? And in the midst of it, what I've done is I took the financial freedom class. And that really helped because it was about getting practical, looking at the numbers. And actually looking at the numbers, although some of the numbers were not in my favor, it actually gave me peace.
1: And I realized that I
0: tended to optimism. I tended to live in this world of ideas and hope and spiritual God is love and we are all together and we'll be okay. And that's been really hopeful. That has helped me survive my adverse teenage years, my adverse college years, my adverse years when I was working across the street as an intern for youth ministry and I was. Teaching Bible study and leading worship, and then I was going up the street to my friend Tommy's house and smoking pot and snorting coke and drinking beer, you know, living this conflicted reality because I was just in survival mode. But it helped got me through. The optimistic kind of view of reality. The drugs helped also. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying, self-medication is a reality. And I think i prefer that than if they put me on some psychotropic medications as a teenager. Anyway, that's another conversation. (laughs) Um, But this thought that when we can get real and honest about what is really happening and look at it realistically, that that's where something can transform. It doesn't mean we ignore the pain, the hardship. We have to engage, talk about that, be in therapy, be in supportive community have vulnerable relationships, but it also means we don't just live in the land of fantasy, that someday it's going to all get better and gradually my income, you know, my credit card debt is going up and up and up. So dealing in the middle is the path of the realist. And I love this quote from Rumi, who had this to say about trouble. The moment you accept what troubles you, the door opens that when we can live in a stance of acceptance of what is, a door to a better future and possibility can open. And from that, what I realize in thinking about my life is that I have been somebody who, because i have wired optimistically, I've been able to accept reality and find a way around it. And as I was preparing for today, this concept came to me from from the French uh, word bricolage. And bricolage, do you know bricolage, anybody? So the French word has to do with to tinker. That's the origins of it. And then it kind of evolved into this idea of do it yourself. And then it's kind of this idea that you take what you have um, like an artwork of found objects. Somebody, Any of you artists that do art with found objects, you just go and collect things and you make something out of it. And you make something that has value, and beauty, and goodness. Greek collage. It's a concept that helps us when we're facing adversity, obstacles, and roadblocks. Because things were not going well for Moses and the people. Trying to figure out how to do this and that story is going to continue There's a lot of things that they're going to do some magic tricks that we'll hear about in the coming weeks And that's probably re also But if we can find a way to take what we're given and figure it out and that was really my path you know, I found Jesus that worked I figured out that if you show up to church and you make friends and you and community, that that's helpful. So I did all these things. I figured out how to get myself to college. Nobody was really helping me along the way. But Brie Collage has been a part of my life. All the time. And specifically it's been a part of my life in terms of motherhood. So it's Mother's Day. I hate Mother's Day. I'll just say that. I'm not a mother. I had a shitty mother. And it's not a day I've enjoyed. And in my journey of marriage, my husband and I never got to a point where we could agree to have children. He was unwilling to say no, because he was afraid and being pessimistic and had a lot of fears about the future because I'd had breast cancer and he was afraid we'd have kids and then I'd die of breast cancer later. He was afraid that he had depression and he'd be a depressed father. He had legitimate fears, but he also wasn't willing to really own that and say no. So I had to do a Greek collage at one point. And I had to say, okay, he's unwilling to say no, but I know I can't live this way. I can't live every month of my life with the hope that maybe I'll have children and biologically feeling this energy rising in me and not having a kid.
1: And so around
0: 40, my early 40s, I I decided I needed to commit myself and say, I'm not gonna have a biological baby because my body was also like I'm like, yeah, this is going to be too hard. I can't do that. And maybe I'll foster. Maybe there'll be another path. But I need to make a decision now. And so I gathered a community of my closest friends, and I had an unbaby baby shower. collage. No one, no one had ever told me about an unbaby shower. But it was a marker for me to say my destiny is not turning out the way I wanted it to. And I can't continue to suffer the way I'm suffering, holding this hope. Free collage, have it on baby shower. We had a ritual, they brought uh, presents. Always yeah. ask for presents if you're having a party for yourself. And they blessed me, and they said beautiful things, and they helped me reclaim a seed of my destiny that. I didn't know what to do with. I had no, I'm like, oh. And I, I had already been seeing how that feminine nature was already working through my work as a therapist and other mentoring relationships, but it was really around that time I gave myself even more to being a mentor, um, a, a substitute mother figure to many people. And over the years, I've had not just my clients, but young professionals, Um, Coming to New Abbey, I've had many people, people in the room today. Um, People that aren't in the room today who have become children to me. It's free collage. We take something we long for and we can't hold on to the exact flower or tree or whatever we thought the seed was going to grow. Because it never happens that way. Because even if you have the children which I learned as my parent, friends, kids got older, and uh, my, my mom friends have suffered in ways far beyond anything. I've suffered, I think, from not having children because once you have a child and you love that child and they suffer, oh, it's so painful. So, bricolage is a way of looking at where you are with these obstacles, roadblocks, adversities, and asking God, Seeking friends input like what can I do with what I have? How can I make something of my life? Even though it's not the life I would have chosen for myself. I think Jesus was great at recollage. Jesus turned water into wine Have you ever heard of the parable of the stone soup? A soldier is going on a journey in a land where there's a famine and He's hungry and passing through the town, so he starts asking around, saying, hey, does anyone have a place to stay, any food? And everyone's like, yeah, no, you better go on to the next town. You don't have any food. So he says, that's okay, I have everything I need. He pulls out this uh, cast iron black pot, very large pot, and he has a stone. He fills it up with water, puts the stone in, and lights a fire, and starts to boil the water. And people get curious, and they're like, what's the dude doing? And, He's like, oh, this is a soup I make. It's called stone soup, huh? And they're like, hmm, food? We need food. And he says, oh, but, you know, it's actually better with cabbage. You know, it's okay this way. Oh, well, I, I got cabbage. So one guy goes and gets cabbage. And then the butcher comes along, and he's like, oh, it's even better with a little meat in it. Oh, huh? I got some scrap meat I can get used to the butcher. Well, you hear the story. So carrots show up, celery shows up. They make stone soup, free collage. They make a bounty, and everybody eats and is happy. Stone soup, free collage. The invitation for us is to think about that. Jesus turned water into wine. He multiplied the loaves and the fishes. So that was miraculous, right? That was because he had superpowers. So we can kind of discount that one, right? Because we're just human. But the most important thing he did in his journey was he chose a motley crew of outcasts, tax collectors, fishermen, women of ill repute. Greek collage. He took the people who were willing to work with him, the fancy people, the religious people. They didn't want anything to do with him. He took what he had and made something of it. Jesus. Invites us into being people who innovate, who create paradigms and ways of living that are beyond the norms of reality. And that's what New Abbey is about. We are bricolage. You know, there was a vision for something different. And it changes all the time. Like we're here two weeks, three weeks ago, we were somewhere else. But bricolage, we gotta leave, so we pack up, people come, we make something happen. It's an energy of evolution and moving forward that the church has not allowed for individuals or for communities. We've stayed stuck in the same places, singing the same songs, reading the same prayers, blah, 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 and it's become empty and meaningless. So evolutionary, transformative life in Christ is always changing, and change is an opportunity for growth. My favorite thing that I've ever read in the Bible about being a mother is from John 19, when Jesus is on the cross. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Jesus is on the cross. He saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing beside her, and he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home, free collage. It's the end of his life. It's the end of life as they've known it. It's a crazy moment, think about it. All the other disciples are gone. A few have stayed. What I've experienced in my life, and especially in the adversity since my husband died three years ago, six months later I got diagnosed with early stage breast cancer, and then COVID hit. Adversity. I'm living in my life, but God brings Justin, Corey's nephew, to live with me through the pandemic the whole first year. He becomes a son Many of you have become family. My destiny going forward is the hope to build an ADU in my backyard. I'll go live in the backyard and I have a family I love that I hope may live in the front yard. But, Rico who knows what their life will be? I can't count on it. So maybe I end up in the front house and one of you or two of you end up in the back house. I don't know, but I know I don't want to be alone. And this is what Jesus calls us to, community. To be in vulnerable relationships where we ask for what we need. And I can say, I need a place to be. I need a place to have a pot. I need a family. I need children and grandchildren to try to get stop eating the donuts. <laughs> I need to invest myself in this energy and people that I can love and love for me. That's what we all need. And that's what we hope New Abbey can be for people. A place where we can be vulnerable and ask for what we need and support one another because our life going forward is never going to be steady and, and same. It's that, that life is over. The way the world is moving, it's always going to have to be pre-collage. And so to be willing to live in the tension of all of that and see what we can create together. So that's our hope as a community. And my hope for all of us is to be willing to do the hard work of vulnerability, owning our own experience, talking to God about that, talking to each other about it, and that's the work of transformation. So with that little piece of light conversation, I want to invite you to get into your groups and ask these questions. Two opportunities, answer what you will or something else. Who are your allies and how do you ask for help? How might the practice of Rikula support you in this season of life?